Welcome to Today's Entrepreneur, a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business presented by FL Montreal. My name is Dan Delmar, along with FL Montreal's Mike Newton again with you today. Hi, Mike. Hey, Dan. How are you? Good. How are you? Great. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to today's show because we're going to speak with an engineer who took over an 80-year-old meat business in Shawinigan. Indira Modi from Beyond La France joins us, and uh, she's going to, she's a bit of a, how can I put this politely? She's, she's a process nerd. She's, she's an engineer, and she's really into process and, and making things more efficient uh, and more humane uh, along the way. So Indira joins us um, on the show today. And we'll also be speaking with uh, one of my consultants, actually. She's part of the larger TNKR Media family. Bonnie Fagenbaum will talk about government relations and when it comes time for entrepreneurs to talk to governments, how to do that effectively and most appropriately as well, because of course, uh, you don't want to, you know, be handing anyone any envelopes or anything, Mike. Um, you have to talk to government very carefully, right? Good news that there's no correlation between the uh, the meat industry and our uh, topic of uh, how to uh, how to deal with the government afterwards. So you know, no regulation there at all. No, on the contrary, Indira is <laughs> going to talk about just how obsessive they have to be with uh, with safety and quality control because they interact with government on a on a very regular basis. So we'll talk about that yeah, on the show today. The, the, you know, the one thing that's interesting and, 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 you know, hopefully we'll get into it a little bit later is this whole discussion on policy and policymaking and who's making policy. Uh, you know, when we start getting into government regulation and, uh, you know, it's very easy that if the right people are not making the policy, that the policy ends up being tainted. And I think that that's, uh, that's going to be a challenge for all of us as we go forward. We're living in a highly compliant world. Everything that we do, every entrepreneur complains about the level of compliance. Some of it is mandatory and, and, and there's no way you can get around. And there's other areas of compliance that I think, you know, I've, I've, I've tied a lot of entrepreneurs' hands. And in heavily regulated industries, I mean, having an engineer and someone who's really all about the process can, can help in that regard. So Indira will... I'll bring that up in a little while. And uh, we want to start, though, by talking about leadership. And this is definitely the opposite of Indira, because she is a very empathetic and very forward-thinking leader. But some leaders, however, well, I want to talk about the the, the trait of narcissism. There's some some stuff on that in the news this week from Business Insider, from um, from the SciPost.org website as well. Let's go back to Gordon Gecko, Mike. I know, I know, we both saw that movie in, yeah, in the eighties. Greed is good. Uh, you know, the only best friend you need is a dog. Stuff like that. Stuff that worked in the eighties as as so called leadership simply does not work anymore, and certainly not for millennials who are expect, expecting uh, more uh, more empathetic and more forward thinking leadership today. Definitely, though I may argue with you that the dog the, the dog component is still my best friend, but that's a whole different exercise. That's fair. Poppy's my best friend. Exactly. Exactly. Um, <laughs> no, a hundred percent. And I and I think the 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 model of leadership uh, when you when you start looking at uh, the world we're living in in terms of empathy, emotional intelligence, and a lot of a lot of the uh, I guess the buzzwords that we're dealing with today really are, are at contrast to what we were taught when we were brought up in terms of being that strong, uh, in-your-face, uh, narcissistic type uh, leader. And, and, you know, most a lot of people, have, you know, call, call them sociopaths at the end of the day. That might be a tad harsh for some of us. 
But, uh, you know, I, I also don't think you can do what you have to do to run a business with a little bit of larceny in your soul and a little bit of narcissism in, in your personality. Uh, you have to be able to stand up there when, and have a conversation when, you know, you, you have to believe in what you're doing. You have to believe in yourself. So, you know, I, I don't want this conversation to go in the, 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 the side that narcissism is bad. And I, I think it's like anything else in life. It's moderation. It's, it's being able to control the environment that, that you're working in. And, and there's a lot of good and bad that comes with it. The problem with, with, with narcissism and is how do you identify it in future leaders is, is how do you find that person who is in the best interest of the organization versus their own best interests and you know one of the articles was interesting because they they, they talk about a few things to to keep on your radar you know one of them being you know a manager who looks after only themselves you know that they may come across with this well i'm doing things in the best interest of the organization but you know deep down you see through that layer to know that this is all about them there are no doubt that people have narcissistic tendencies. Uh, I don't believe all of them are, are um, bad in a person's personality. I think, again, it's a question of understanding things. But again, time and a place. I mean, somebody who's going to call somebody out or correct somebody in public or going to do whatever they need to do because it's their own best interest, you know, is not a team player at the end of the day. There's a time and place for, for everything. Um, a lot of narcissists, unfortunately, also look at people as numbers. And you know, when you get right down to it at the end of the day, you're a means to an end. You're a pawn in the chest. I mean, I could go on for, for days. But, you know, they're, they're, they're looking at employees as furniture. And the one thing that we have learned, I think, through COVID in, and are continuing to watch as, you know, the great resignation finds its way uh, closer to home is this whole discussion of how important our people are. And you just can't afford to take people for granted and, and treat them like numbers. And the higher the education level, the more that, you know, people are, are, are having a control over of their ability to, to be the way that they're treated. And I guess the kind of the last one that really stands out to me is this whole discussion of taking the spotlight from the team. The leader should be front and center going to proverbial war, should be at the back of the pack when it comes to uh, the success of the team and the success of the organization. And, and you're so right. There is a little bit of ego that's totally necessary in, in the business. I mean, I'm in the media business, so it's, it's doubly true here, but uh, it's knowing when to, when to not fall into the narcissist trap, right? When not to sort of drown in the pond when you're staring at your own reflection. Exactly. It's it again. It's it's time and place. It's 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 balance. It's it's everything else in life. I mean, yeah. You go back to Gordon Gecko. That was probably the definition of narcissism. That I don't think there's an employee out there that ever wants to see again. So you know, those are the things that we continue to to, to deal with. Three letters that uh, cause a chill in the spine of every marketer: KPI, Key Performance Indicators. How how is this concept evolving about uh, mere performance-based numbers? Well, it may cause a chill to you, but for a lot of accountants, it's a, it's a big highlight of their day. It's numbers. Uh, I think KPIs going backwards, um, really, uh, you know, the, the, only, the only good KPI to me is what I can do with it to move forward and how I can use that to, to, to follow trends and, and to look at what I'm doing. A lot of people will live in the past on numbers. Uh, this is what we did. This is where our success was and, and not do anything with it. Uh, I think a large part of the, you know, the analysis I've done with our firm over the years is trying to create my own little uh, AI mode in, in my brain. And it's not about processing the data. It's about what I do with the data at the end of the day. And I think, you know, a lot of us do the wrong things with KPIs and, and you cannot look back, but you need to use them to try and predict the future, try and follow trends. I, I'm a big, I'm a big believer in trend analysis. I'm a big believer in 
in, in, in following uh, up numbers and, and, and following to that perspective. So, you know, you have your, your, your policy wonks and your, your engineering uh, nerds, uh, you know, you got a little bit of that uh, math nerd in me, but uh, it, it really is about what am I going to do with these numbers going forward? Not about, you know, chastising or, 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 or rewarding everybody based on what they were in the past. And then coming back to our previous topic, you know, it involves also maybe sometimes listening to your ego and then, you know, seeing if maybe uh, the numbers are going to be different in the future or maybe being counterintuitive with, the, with those numbers. 110%. I mean, the, the, you know, we, we, as, a, as a society, we like to rest on our laurels. Uh, you know, if the numbers passed were good, we say, hey, we're doing a good job, pat ourselves on the back and move on to the next year or the next project uh, without taking into account that, you know, if, if you followed that trend, maybe the numbers were good, but maybe they were trending down. Maybe they were trending sideways. You know, we, we, we have to take our ego out and we have to look at this and say, hey, read the, read the information for what it is, not what we want it to be. Mike, let's get right to our guest. She is the president of Viande la France, Indira Moody. Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me here. Pleasure to speak with you. It's an interesting business that's evolving, and that's certainly important to stay local. We're going to talk about that a lot on the program today. Um, but first, uh, just a quick uh, explanation. What is your business, Viande la France? So we are very much in the, in the, in the meat sector. We work with the local farms, and we ensure that... Uh, we uh, get back to those farms, the uh, animals that they fed. So by doing that, we are very much in the local business where um, through either providing the services of those farms to those farms or buying and selling our own meats, we are able to provide local meat. What I mean local is really much in the area of about 300 kilometers maximum from our plants and uh, serving the entire Quebec. So you, so you are exclusively Quebec at this point. You're that you're buying locally, you're selling locally, you're distributing locally. I mean, everything. This this is very much in an environment that is, um, you know, I, I, you know, for for a world we live in is very global, and COVID has seemed to bring us back to a little bit of more local. I mean, this is fascinating. You, there, there, there's enough here for you to keep and and support your business. Let's put it this way. Um, if I triple my business size right now, in the sense that I'm able to, today I'm producing in one shift, I'm able to produce uh, to, to, through the third shift, I will have enough space on the local business. Wow, that's fascinating. It's pretty much in demand. It's pretty much uh, uh, what is uh, particularly with the, with the COVID situation that we have seen. Uh, we know that the health workers are, are pretty much on the front line. I'm very happy to say that uh, uh, we have uh, remained open because of the demand. And then we were able to continue to feed Quebec with Quebec products and manufacture 100% here. Excellent. Most I, important, I, I would say, from my ad on the local side, is that we are in the region. So we are uh, very much um, uh, the opposite of the urban world, where we are in harmony with uh, all the people producing locally. I think that's a perfect lead into the next question I was going to ask you because we can't go into the to the meat sector without discussing sustainability, uh, farming methods, butchering methods, a lot of things that you know, as Dan said earlier, are controversial. I guess in in, in the world we're living in today, uh, I do believe that the sustainability model that you have built is a very large factor in how strong you can be within the Quebec marketplace. Maybe give us a little bit of an insight into your concept of sustainability and where that came from in uh, in your mindset. 
You know, uh, my background is uh, I spent 20 years in the energy sector. And particularly, I've seen the oil and gas, I've seen, the re I've seen renewable, and I've seen also uh, the oil business, uranium. And I know that how, how we were working in 1997, when I started just back to school out of Project of Montreal, the way we were working on that, those years and the way we produce today is completely different. We have learned how to be sustainable. We have learned how to um, how to really much reduce our footprint uh, to the environment. So, I am someone that was went to school for mass production as an industrial engineer, and thirty years after, I realized how much it's important to still do the production, but in the eco-responsible manner and responsible manner. And my business, with that background that I have on sustainability being in my brain, and my own business, 10 years in the food sector now, I realize how much we are touching reality by this uh, short food supply chain, where we create a trust between the consumer and the producer. And, and you know, some people will come in in some of the shops where we sell and say, okay, we want from this producer. That's how short that is. Still keeping the right standard of, of, uh, of majors, keeping the same type of request that is demanding on, on the, the standard wise. And by doing so and having a plan that is local, we basically shorten all the transportation that is done on all sides, being from the, the raw material than being for bringing the, the, the food itself, fresh food, to the consumer. Indira, you're uh, an engineer and you were <laughs> in oil and gas and now in the meat business. You must have a pretty thick skin and you must have to spend a lot of your time explaining and teaching people, right? That's my favorite part. I am where I am today because a lot of people have spent time on me. So I, it's a duty for me to be a model and to show to not only that we can do things in a sustainable manner, but we can do things as women and we can do things as being new in a place. A lot of people have asked me, why Shawinigan in Quebec? Actually, I knew since my 18 years old that I'm gonna have my own business. So what I did, I worked hard for 20 years and did the first retirement that I used to buy my, my, my business and get it to where it is right now. And it could have been anywhere because as an industrial engineer, I could have been the glass, it could have been something else, right? But I was looking for a, a business that have a meaning in life and then that's a sustainable, that is, that I can also take further for the next for the next step in the, in the journey of life. So when I found this business, people were like, why Shawinigan? Well, that was the right place to educate my kids. It's in a, it's in a village. It's an hour and a half on the big time. It's giving me all the opportunity for growth as a business, as a family, as a mother and all the rest. So yes, I spend a lot of time on teaching and sharing, but I acknowledge that I have a lot of people that have helped me too. And that's two way in life of an entrepreneur. It's excellent because, you know, a lot of times in the, we, we look at entrepreneurs and, you know, the almighty dollar and the capitalist mentality and everything else. And, you know, part of the, the fascination is I was you know, looking into doing some research into who you are and, and what you've done is, is, the ability to have the social conscious, the sustainability model, the local model uh, in, in, a, in a world that many people, I think, are tainted by 
the way they see the media portray uh, the meat the meat industry and everything else. So I mean, certainly power to you for for what you've accomplished and you continue to go. Uh, yeah, how how do you maintain how do you maintain the quality? How do you control what happens on the farm? I mean, that whole social conscience and sustainability model is there's only so much of it you can actually control at the end of the day. How do you keep tabs and and certifying the standards on the quality of of where you source your product from? So first of all, uh, my background has helped us a lot because I, I qualify. I, I, I um, did a specialization in quality control. So my first step, uh, the business we acquired, well, had 18 years, 80 years of uh, history. So by the time I bought it, uh, there was uh, there was the process of quality without control. Uh, the first norms in the food sector is what we call HACCP, Hazard Analysis Critical Control Point. So the first two years, we focused on saying, let's bring this norm, uh, just for cracking the, the words here. In the normal industry, we call it ISO, or we call it other type of standard. So the ISO standard of the food sector is HACCP. So my first step was, okay, let's get a control of, uh, put a place at HACCP, which we had procedures, controls, labs, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, you raise your costs of, uh, of producing because you basically need the quality control, you need to have procedures, you need to have processes, you need to have traceability. When I acquired the business, there was no traceability. Today, we can actually trace any, any carton, any carcass, any piece of the meat from where it comes from and where it's going. So that's how we raise the, the quality of, of whatever we are doing. And basically, if you don't do so, you will die because it's you basically need to tie in to where we are today in 2020, 2030, 2040. So the future is, as far as I'm concerned, I strongly believe that uh, um, all local businesses, particularly in the food sector, have a place on the table. It's important that we, as consumers, we understand that we eat better and we by, by eating, sourcing, local food, and it's important also, as well that uh, we kind of find a win-win situation with a degrowth strategy with majors that works hand-in-hand -hand together. So it's not one or the other. What is difficult to make sense is, uh, I'm going to use another industry just for the sake of understanding quite. You are here in Quebec and you want to drink a Perrier. Perrier, it's a source that is coming from very far. And when you think about it, of transporting all this from where it's coming from, to get it on my table here, that's where it's an issue. So we need to understand that. So to, to, to answer your question on the quality, raise the bar, get the quality in the local plants, and make sure that you transgress by educating everybody to go local. And we're talking about the future of the meat business and uh, Indira, how, you know, sometimes when you're in a tough business, it takes a lot of education, a lot of, a lot of contemplation as well. When you look 10, even 20 years uh, down the road, how will you be innovating in this business? So we discussed earlier, you're keeping it local, you're uh, improving the supply chain. What does the future of this business look like in, in 10 years? Will we still be eating meat? Oh, human beings will not stop eating meat but we need to learn how to produce meat in a sustainable manner. Um, one thing we're doing right now is that all of the small factories like mine, we are regrouping ourselves. 
Um, today we created, uh, not, not more than a year ago, we created an, an association of all the small plants and we are sharing best practices and we are writing our, our own story. So um, by doing that, we are elevating uh, the, the comfort level of the industry that are on their own. And we are also, I'm the first one in my plant to have uh, get the certification of HACCP. The local business of the meat sector have not gone there because it's not uh, yet uh, known or the, the, the agency itself locally does not uh, uh, mandate that. But we have shown that we can get a certification and we can be ahead of the game. So by sharing the best practices among all the other plants, uh, we can only work towards multiplying our, our type of business. Now, for reaching there, we also need the help of the local agency because um, of the regulation, I should say because it's not something that we can do ourselves. So it's important that the consumer keep on requesting our kind of meat by understanding that it's good for the farming, for the consumer itself that is eating more local food, for their own well-being, their own happiness. There's all, there's all a link between all that. So if the consumer understand that, and we work hand in hand on this demand, is gonna be more requests on our type of industry. And that's how we can put a little bit more pressure on working with the measures to produce more locally. It's, it's interesting because the, the, it feeds into a marketing discussion at the end of the day, right? Is how you and the other locals go to market, how you create that awareness amongst the consumers. And, and, and I'm gonna ask you a very simple, basic question. You know, you walk into your local butcher, how do I know? How am I, how am I uh, capable of understanding the scenario of what uh, meat has been offered to me and thinking, hey, I'm doing the right thing here? So uh, if you are a consumer that spend attention on the taste, you will know it. Right. When you eat a meat that is locally made and is fresh, when I mean fresh, mm -hmm. is less than a week old, there is a complete difference when you eat a meat coming from Brazil or from somewhere else. But I'll, yeah. only, know, I'll only know that after I take it home. You only so know how, that how do I not get, shall we say, tricked or, or, or coerced when I walk into? So there are some butchers, okay, that will tell you they are local, local. So you have to ask the question. You need to ask the question. And by the time you get used on getting that product, you basically realize that you might be paying it more because it might be more expensive mm -hmm. to produce it locally. Right, um, it might be more expensive not to have it as a mass production. So, but it's on the taste-wise is more tasty, and then you also there's a, there's a work on the consciousness. Let me tell you a story. My my son is about ten years old, and nowadays I cannot buy him any small yogurt. Yogurt, he will tell me, Mom, I'm not gonna take it because if you take it to school, he he's been taught that. So, uh, he has to bring his yogurt in a recyclable, in a pan that is rec recycled. And that's, uh, so mom had to learn how to do yogurt and bake, put it in a small can that I can wash after. So he's teaching me, my son is teaching me how to be more, um, more environmental friendly, right? So it's the same process for the meat. Um, we need to work on education. Normally, 
even myself 10 years ago, I was not so much aware of it. Today, um, of course, uh, time being, and, and I, I'm that business, I realize how much it takes less of everything to do it in a smaller businesses that is more local. So it is raising the awareness. And also I walk the talk, like I walk the talk. I basically uh, pay for that on my person by being the leader, speaking about it. That's what we're doing on this venue today. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to explain it. I totally agree with you. I don't think you can lead by sitting back and just pontificating. I think you can only lead, whether it's a movement, whether it's an organization, by being part of it and, and contributing to it. And like you said, walking the walk and talking the talk. So yeah, power to you for, uh, for, for, living, for living what you're doing. So I think, that, I think that's awesome. Um, there's, you know, we'll switch back maybe to, to a little more... Uh, business uh, discussion here, because I, I think you and I could go on and, and we could bring Dan in on education of uh, people for a, a, like a two hour segment and just in terms of, of where we are. But let, let, let's bring it back a little bit. I, I, I look at, at what you're doing and to me, you have a business inside a business and that's your trucking and logistics. And that's, you know, you look at large corporations who, you know, make money on their trucking and logistics, who live in a world where the trucking and logistics, you know, somewhere between the, uh, the environment the footprint, the dollars that they're making. You guys, this is all part of, by doing it yourselves, this is all part of controlling A, the quality and B, the sustainability of everything. Am I correct? That is very correct. That is very correct. So my truck, I <laughs> one of the labor that is very much in demand right now is the drivers, right? And I have driver that would tell me, oh, I'm tired of doing I'm driving all through the way to, to, to a week away ahead of home and my driver leave here, leave the base at about 4 a.m., enter the big city being Montreal um, uh, or Quebec. All the, we are about two hours from the big cities. They enter in the big cities before the traffic, deliver to the big stores and back against the traffic by 3 p.m. they are home, actually 2 p.m. they are home. So um, it allows the driver to spend, first of all, weekend, they don't need to go to work. And it's allowed them also to come back at home every day to be at home with their family. So yes, we do some, we do some trucking, but it's, it's very much controlled in a controlled manner so that we make sure that we minimize the, the footprint of the GES. Speaking of your workforce, I had a question. Um, I mean, trucking is extremely difficult, and and uh, you know, I, I I did a bit of transport brokering. It's a tough business, but the meat business, wow, that is that is tough on on employees as well. Tell me about uh, about what you what you do to keep your employees happy and motivated in something that's that's a very physically demanding job. So, so basically, um, we every every driver has its own specific uh, way of uh, uh, either uh, transporting or wanting the specific run. So they might be able to ask us uh, a specific tool or a specific uh, uh, item to load the meats or unload the meats. We just, we just don't take it general. We make sure that for each of the uh, driver, uh, whatever is needed for their own demand to make it the life easier, we do it. Second thing, you know, when you travel, um, there is a limit on the on the size, on the weight of the bag, right? 
uh, and there's overweight and non-overweight, right? Okay, so we make sure that we stay in within the limit of what is not overweight. And secondly, if the run is too big, very importantly, we always send two people, right? So by doing that, we minimize. Now, there's another part, which is educating the, the, the shops that are receiving the meat. We have to educate them that whatever process that they were doing before that was too demanding, we cannot do it here. So it has happened to me, not very often, I think two times in my history, where we told the consumer that whatever you're asking, if it's not cut, we can deliver to you. Customer was not happy, call us back when you're happy. Because the health and the safety of our employees is number one. There's no production that is worth to harm anybody. You come to work with your 10 finger, you're back home with your 10 finger. It's, yeah, I, you know, I, I have to say, I'm kind of sitting here shaking my head just kind of in, in disbelief at the, at, at the way you approach all of this in, in, in a sector that has, has traditionally been controversial. So um, I guess the one last, uh, the one last question that, that I have for you is, you know, as you continue to move forward, like everybody else at some point in the future, I mean, I know you're still very young. The transition of this, how you pass this on to the next generation, how you get that understanding to perpetuate the message that you are sending. Um, do you start with in-house education with your team? Are you looking at this? Are people coming in already receptive? And what do you see down the road for, for the future of, of your business? Okay, let me talk to you about two projects that are dear to me that I'm working on with the team here. One of the projects is... Uh, um, the um, la viande non comestible. I'm looking for the word in English, but it is going to come. So whatever meat that is actually um, can be used in, in a process of biomethanization will bring more sustainability to the process. And if the project is positive, it, I don't need, we don't need Indira to make it talk. It will talk for itself. Where it's obvious that we can produce meat in a more and more sustainable manner. The second project is all the other wastes that we can today um, take to the next level on the skin. So it's known that we needed a chemistry that has an environmental footprint that is not, might not be good. There are research going on today that will using natural product that we have here in Quebec that can serve that. If we find a solution, what about all those ones that we import to make leather work, okay? So those type of solutions, my dream is to have the high, the nice and good partners that believe in it. So we work together and find local solutions that will take it to the next level. And then you don't need any mirror because the story would have made it pizza. Mike, right. I, I could listen to uh, engineer entrepreneurs talk all day long. I find, Indira, I think your approach is fascinating. We're going to have your one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur in a few minutes. But first, let's bring in our expert. And uh, I'm very proud to have a TNKR media expert from our family here. Um, uh, we have a PR and content business, and we're, we're really proud to have, as part of our extended family, uh, a consultant named Bonnie Fagenbaum, who's really like a local legend. And uh, Bonnie um, is a, uh, a public affairs consultant with us. She's a lecturer at the John Molson School of Business and as well with McGill's Parliamentary Development Program. 
She's a former town councillor in Hampstead, chief of staff to a federal MP, and, and like I said, just a local legend. Bonnie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. That's a really a hard act to follow, local legend. Well, only in my own mind. <laughs> and in mine as well. Thank First, uh, I want to talk about talking to government, and especially in sensitive ind industries like, like the meat business or others. Um, what is the biggest challenge if you're an entrepreneur and you want to put something on government's radar? It's tough to get their attention, um, especially in a kosher way. What's, what's the biggest challenge in opening up that, uh, that, 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 uh, that dialogue? The biggest challenge is knowing who to talk to, knowing how to start it. What you, you had mentioned in a, a kosher way, well, uh, the government has absolutely no problem with people reaching out to them and trying to make their positions heard, but it has to be done transparently. Anytime that you want to interact with a government official, to change anything in your favor, whether it be an urban planning, whether it be road work, whether it be traffic, you have to use a registered lobbyist so that everything is tracked. Yeah, so we don't do lobbying because it's a really bad idea if Dan Delmar talks to politicians. So when 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 a customer wants to uh, talk to a politician, we say, well, Bonnie is a registered lobbyist and she'll help you out. What's the first thing you do? Is it, is it, is it letter writing? Is it a phone call? First, finding out which politicians can help them the best, finding out what riding they are in. It's easy to do that. Just Google through your uh, through ASNAT and put in your postal code, ASNAT Assemblée Nationale, put in your postal code. You'll figure out easily which MNA serves you and which ones can help you with your financial future if you need to get money from the government. And the same thing federally. Just go onto the parliament website and put in your postal code and they'll tell you which MP is your direct link to government. Interesting and that's question. your first step. Excellent. Well, I'm going to take that one step further. And I think I'm going to try and dispel the myth that in, in lobbying versus Canada and the U.S. And, you know, the U.S., it is a machine. It, uh, it's gone beyond a well-oiled machine to a full-on industry uh, in the U.S. In Canada, like everything else, I guess we do, we're significantly more subtle. Um, you know, it, it, from, from a, uh, to use the term you were saying before, Dan, from a kosher perspective, lobbying in Canada, is there more of a moral uh, approach to dealing with lobbying here than there is elsewhere? Um, I, I don't think so, to be honest with you. You know, when I teach, my students always ask me, you know, are marketers supposed to manipulate consumers? Do And when I say, well, yes, that's our job. And it's the same thing with lobbyists. We're being hired to push our company's mandate, to put our company's positions. It's lobbyists who are preparing all those briefs that are being heard by the commissioners right now. Um, yes, it, 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 it's more subtle, but it's more effective. I mean, there were a whole bunch of cannabis lobbyists sent to the Liberal Convention in 2015 in uh, Montreal, 2014, excuse me, in Montreal. And they were the one who's, who convinced the delegates to change the platform from decriminalizing marijuana to legalizing marijuana. And those are the big players now eh, in the cannabis space. Good point. What about for um, a controversial industry, you know, like like meat or or, or any others, um, people that have to file regular reports or check in with agencies? What tips do you have um, in terms of entrepreneurs uh, who need to communicate, uh, perhaps on a monthly basis, with government? In the, I, I will quote Star Trek: "Resistance is futile. Comply, comply, comply. That's that's all. You must comply. It is not worth it." And I'm sure Indira can, can back me up on this. It is not worth it to cut corners. 
comply, comply, because once you're on their radar of not complying to security, they are going to look at you uh, under a magnifying glass. Indira, what do you think? Have you had uh, good experiences with government inspectors? Comply is, is the right thing to do, right? It's, um, you know, at the end, what we need to realize, particularly nowadays where there's all this um, facility of communication, social media and all that, I, I won't believe that there's any producer that want to give something to eat that is not good. So that's obligation to produce correctly in compliance is from all front end. And what matters is to have the right communication with the compliance and the people working. That's what is the most important. When we don't have that collaboration of understanding that we have the same goal in, in the world of celebrity, that's when there has started to be an issue. Uh, when you say it all, we have to comply. Uh, and it's uh, important that that compliance go on hand on hand with the right collaboration. Uh, issue arise when the collaboration is not there, when the, um, the, the, the company is trying to do um, something that is not in comply, or the inspector want to have it done in his way, and, and that's where it start to have tension. But other than that, I, I am here to believe that we are not here to kill people. We are here to produce correctly. And it has to be a strong collaboration, strong, strong collaboration, education as well on all front end, being from the manufacturer and from the inspection and not having, when we still have the process of inspection, thinking being the police, then we start having an issue. So compliance is, is, is undoubtedly the way to go, certainly when it comes to food and everything. But one of the big complaints from a lot of entrepreneurs, I think in the last decade or two, has been this observance to compliance and the hindrance to doing business. And I'm not talking about the quality of a meat product, but in, in, in general, in terms of a lot of the compliance based on policymakers and who's writing policy on the other end and what compliance to whose policy is going to make a difference in the business that I'm running. And, and I think, I mean, we could probably go on for, for, for half a day uh, at this point on this topic, but this to me is huge. I mean, we, we, we fall into policy, we follow into following rules because it is the right thing to do without a doubt. However, if the rules are being written either unfairly or inappropriately by the wrong people, what is the implication to society? Is, uh, if I allow me to, to answer that question, it's a complete waste of food, of time, energy of everybody. So the political agendas of people still needs to find a way to uh, to be in the greater good as, as opposed to uh, the individual narcissism of, uh, of their own being. Very much. It has to be written and done. It's just like if you say you take uh, uh, in the medicine sector and you start writing procedure in the medicine and you don't know nothing about medicine. It doesn't work. It just doesn't work. So we have a lot of sort of responsibility to do by getting uh, the right process done, uh, minimizing the impact. It's a two-way. We can't fly a plane without procedure. We can't. So it has, but it has to be done by the right engineers, by the right people that know about it. So it's it's all way. It's, it's it's extremely important. Otherwise, we waste waste. I mean, there is a lot of a lot of garbages that are done just for doing garbages, not doing writing. So it's, it's really important that the experts that are making this policy are speaking to the right stakeholders 
um, that and, and, and the commission hearings that are being uh, that are being called in order to uh, develop and really make the regulations out there have the right people there. So it's it's making sure that you and you are considered uh, expert in your field and are elevated so that they invite you to these policy hearings and you have the right briefs prepared for you with, with your obviously expertise in uh, expert uh, take on it. Um, it's just a matter of making sure that you're out there and you're relevant. So we would build your profile and make sure that you get invited. Nice. And so look forward to it. Bonnie Fagenbaum, uh, our consultant at TNKR Media on Public Affairs. She does government relations and lobbying on her own as well. She lectures at Concordia and McGill. Uh, just a really great resource to have uh, on hand. Bonnie, thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And as we end the show, Indira Moody of Vian La France, uh, your one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur, please. Get your value right. Whoever you are, consumer, producer, and you do something or you produce something without taking, while hurting people or without taking care of the earth, you're not in the right business. Making money while not taking care of our planets, of our people, doesn't make sense. If we have the value right, we'll get it right. Amazing. Thanks so much. And Mike, uh, again, uh, I, I love an entrepreneur who is an engineer and who builds systems and, uh, and is obsessive with their systems. And Indira is definitely that. Yeah, I think it was a, a phenomenal show. I think there's a certain perspective here that, that we need and that education is great. And education leads me to my last point for the day is I learned one really important thing today. When we don't talk accounting and tax in the last segment, we get everybody involved in a conversation. We had all of us going for that last piece. So <laughs> power to us. Maybe we should be learning on some of that too. Indira Moody, Vian LaFrance, thanks so much for joining us and best of luck. Thanks so much. Thanks. Don't forget, you can head over to todaysentrepreneur.org for over 13 years worth of entrepreneur profiles, and we'll see you back here next week. Take care. This has been a production of TNKR Media. Good talk.